This is David and David on Real Estate. Join us as we explore the ins and outs of the real estate market and dive deep to understand the issues affecting buyers, sellers, investors, and businesses. If you love real estate as much as we do, sit back, relax, and gain an insider's edge to the exciting world of real estate. David Gorski is a broker and the owner of Sutton Summit Realty, a boutique brokerage providing guidance to over 180 realtors. And David Corman is a partner at Corman's LLP, a boutique law firm focusing on residential and commercial real estate transactions with offices located in Toronto, Mississauga, and Markham. Hello, David, and welcome to podcast number four. Super excited to have you joining us today. And hello, David. It's always great to be with you. And looking forward to uh, continuing our discussion from last week because we didn't get half the things on our list that we thought we would we would put in last week's podcast covered. Um, so we're going to continue today. So I've been looking forward to it all week. Oh my God. I remember when we started uh, first time we were talking about doing a podcast together, we were thinking, how are we going to fill an hour of time? <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. And, and mean, uh, meanwhile, when you're this passionate about real estate, uh, it, uh, it, gets, uh, it gets really easy to do that. Yeah. And, and there's always stuff changing. There's always things happening and uh, it's a moving target. So there's always something new to discuss. So we should probably get right to it. Are you going to give us a little bit of a market update to what's happened in the last I, year? I would absolutely love to. And, and listen, um, May the 4th was a, a big day because the Toronto Real Estate Board released their April uh, numbers. And what the board does is they do a month over month comparison. So what they do is they compare April 2021 uh, and use April 2020 as um, a baseline. Now, David, I, I don't know if you remember a year ago, April 2020, were the first few weeks of when the pandemic actually started. So um, the numbers for April 2021, as released by the Toronto Real Estate uh, Board, are extremely, extremely uh, deceptive in, in what they show. Because I yeah. think they show something like, uh, I'm just looking here, April 2021, 13,663 sales. And April of 2020 only had 2,957 sales. So we're seeing a 300 uh, plus uh, increase in the uh, number of uh, sales activity as reported by the Toronto Real Estate Board. So I can only imagine what the six o'clock news is going to do with this information and the headlines we're going to see all over the news today. But I want to caution everybody and, and realtors in how they portray this information to the market and to their clients, because I think we have to really dig deep and, and, and uncover the layers and really understand what these numbers mean instead of just blindly saying that, hey, we're seeing a 367% increase in sales activity uh, uh, month over month from last year. It would be uh, incredibly not the right way of portraying these numbers. I agree with you 100%. That's incredibly deceiving. It would probably make more sense for the comparison to be to 2019 numbers, because uh, there's no question that last April would have had higher numbers if we didn't get hit with a pandemic. Hundred uh, percent pandemic like that, and it was hitting everybody in March, and then the, sh the total shutdown came down, and and uh, you know we were just finding out um, in April, later in April, whether or not uh, real estate was still going to be an essential service. And, and yeah. stay open. We thought we yeah. might all be shut down. So no one was out there putting their homes on the market and everything for a few weeks. And that's what these numbers clearly reflect that. So you can't look at these and say, oh, there's a 300% increase because it's always compared to what? And you're comparing exactly. it to, to an April in a pandemic that we've never had before. So we know every year the market heats up as we get into the spring and February's uh, better than January and March is better than February and April's busier than March. And it, that happens every year in, in every market, no matter what, because we're very cyclical, especially, you know, we're talking residential real estate. Last year, the same thing was starting to happen until we got hit with the pandemic. So good news is, you know, 
you know, the activities started to go again after April, things started, I think we'll have that when you see the May numbers that we'll look at in a few weeks. But, um, you know, this year, it happens to be a very strong market too. I think if you compared it to a 2019, 2018, the, the April numbers, I think would still look really strong. Yeah, and I think what would be helpful is to look at the 10-year sales average, right? And the 10-year sales average is about 10,000 units in April. So when you look at April 2010, uh, 2011, uh, all the way to April of 2019, uh, the average number is about 10,000 units. So when we compare, um, you know, 13,663 units sold uh, compared to the 10-year average of 10,000 units, now we're seeing about a 36% increase in sales activity in April of 21, uh, 2021, which given the fact that, you know, we, we are still in the midst of the pandemic uh, with the stay at home order. Uh, I mean, it's just tremendous amount of sales activity out there. No, it is. And uh, I always tell every agent that I speak to, if you're not busy right now, you got to get out there. Like there's stuff going on and you, and people, are, you know, want to move, they want to make changes. Uh, there is a little more supply coming on the market, which will help with some of the multi-offer stuff, but everybody should be out there because there's people that are anxious to make changes in their lives. And, and that sounds like a much more realistic number when you talk about a 30, 35% increase, because there's no question that, you know, that it's been a good market this spring, you know, in the early spring, like February, March, April, it's been, it's been a very strong market in any year. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the number of new listings coming onto the market, uh, again, huge increases in percentages from April of last year. But when you look at the 10 year average, we're only seeing about 18.3% increase which again, I mean, given the fact that it's a very strong uh, seller's market and people want to take advantage, 18.3% seems, uh, seems like a reasonable increase as well. Yeah. Yeah, I know we're certainly feeling it in our office, you know, in, in terms of the closings and we always lag behind the sales by a couple months, you know, six weeks to a couple months, but our, our volume every month this year has been very strong compared to you know, not last year, like, you know, it, it blows away last year, you know, because these were the, the early pandemic months, but to prior years, we're, we're way ahead of uh, prior years in terms of the volume of closings that we're handling. Yeah, I'm just going to read you a line here from Jason Mercer. He's the uh, Toronto Real Estate Board Chief Market Analyst. Despite a modest slowing in market activity in April compared to March, selling prices for all major home types remained very high. Lowering costs associated with COVID-19 clearly had an impact on the demand for and price of ownership uh, housing. While the pace of price growth could moderate in the coming months, home prices will likely continue on the upward trend. Renewed population growth over the next year, coupled with a persistent lack of new inventory, will underpin home price appreciation. Well, that sounds like fair comment. And it's consistent with what you were telling me last week when we did this uh, podcast about that you were sensing a bit of a slowdown in the, in the activity and that and there were still multi-offers, but, but instead of having 16 on a property, you're getting five or six and things like that, right? And then you couple that with the fact that a little more supply comes on the market as you get into late April, early May, that sort of evens it up. But there's but still, there's lots of activity, but it might be less of this uh, multi-offer type of activity. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, the low borrowing costs still remain. Uh, interest rates are still very near historical low levels. Um, you know, cost of material is going up substantially, right? So a lot of people are getting into the uh, mind frame that, hey, you know what, let's buy a new house instead of renovating our old one, because it just makes financial sense to, to go that route as well. And then with the stay at home order, a lot of people are hesitant to list their house on the market and, you know, have people visit and, and have that exposure and, and, and go through those roadblocks. So, you know, we are seeing the market sort of uh, balance between supply and demand, the low uh, boring costs and, and kind of adjust to what's really happening out there. Yeah, and that's a great point, David. Like the renovation costs are sky high right now. Certain materials like lumber 
you can't, you know, the price of a two by four has gone up by, by a lot in the last little while. You can't get it and you can't get, you can't find a renovator or a contractor to come in and work on something or to fix a problem. So, uh, you know, those are issues uh, as well. I came across a mem on Instagram the other day where a piece of plywood went through somebody's windshield and there was a caption that said, um, you know what, I'm going to sell the piece of pop plywood and buy a new car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's good. All right. So let's get into this, uh, Dave. Um, We were really talking a lot uh, on podcast number three about really what happens when a transaction doesn't close. Right. Yeah. What are the obligations of the buyer? What remedies does the seller have? Um, can you take us through what normally happens when the closing day comes um, and uh, and one of the parties is not ready to close the transaction? Yeah. Well, you know, most of the time this happens on the buyer's end. It's you know, most of the time it's the buyer that can't close. The seller can generally close. You know unless they get cold feet, which we talked about last week, and they don't have a right to get cold feet because they think there's a better offer coming or something like that. So most of the time it's on the buyer's side that they have an inability to close. And, uh, and then it depends on why they can't close. And a lot of the time it's, it's because of the financing. They can't get their financing or they can't get their financing in time or they can't get enough financing. So those are generally, you know, the reasons that prevent a, a buyer for closing. So we have to look at each one. And if, if a buyer can't close because they have a timing issue, because you know, the, they just can't meet that time as of the essence that we talked about, they have to close in the closing date, they need a few more days, they need a week, or their commitment fell through because they were still underwriting conditions and they thought they had everything in place. And all of a sudden we're almost at the closing date and now they, they can't get it and they've got to go to another lender or a schedule instead of an A lender, they got to go to a B lender or a private lender and they need time. So then they're asking for an extension, okay? So a seller doesn't have an obligation to give an extension. It's something that has to be negotiated. So generally, we, you know, if I'm on the seller side, I want the buyer's lawyer to send me a letter saying, we can't close on May 5th, our closing date. We need an extension for a week or two weeks. Here's why. And, and is your client in agreement to that. And then I can reply back. I can speak to the clients and see, because most often we would want to extend if we think it's real. Okay. And if they need a couple days or they need a week or a reasonable time period, we would like to cooperate and extend and we would impose certain conditions on them. So the approach that we take is I would write back to the lawyer saying, um, you've notified us that you can't close. So we'll, that's an anticipatory breach of your agreement of purchase and sale. So we reserve our rights, you know, to keep the deposit and sue you for damages and all that stuff. But without prejudice to those rights, we're prepared to extend on the following terms and conditions. And then we'll list what those terms and conditions are. And we might want evidence that they, that they have a new commitment or an ability to get financing. We might, we for sure want them to pay the costs of the seller for that time period to make sure they keep them, the seller whole because the seller won't have that money. So they should give them interest on the money or interest on their, you know, cover their mortgage costs, the utility costs, their insurance costs, the extra legal costs for negotiating this, that type of thing to keep them whole. But generally we take an approach, you know, we try and extend if on reasonable terms, if we can, because it's generally better for the seller to do that than go back to the market and just rely on their strict rights and say, oh, I'm keeping your deposit. I'm going to sell it to somebody else. In certain circumstances, we'll take that position because they have the right to do that. But we have to look, is that practical? Because by the time you put it back in the market, is the market going up? Is the market going down? How much time is going to go by until you close? So you got to weigh all that. So we A lot of the times, the houses are not prepared anymore. The staging furniture is not right. there. All been you know, there's, there's boxes, you know, the... the uh, um, the walls were scuffed when they were removing the big couch, right? So the house is definitely not market ready at that point. Right. And you'd have to start that process over again and not knowing, you know, what's the market you're going to get into a week or two from now. Are you going to sell for a higher price to lower price? How long is it going to take? Is it going to, you know, can you get a closing date that's quick or is it a closing date? You know, if you sell it tomorrow, they can't close for another two months. 
So now you're that seller stuck. And it also depends on what the seller is doing too, because the seller needs that money to buy another property that has to be factored in as well. Or does the seller have an ability to get a bridge loan in the meantime? So they got to carry two properties. So we got to factor all those things in. So we're not always just hammering the other side with our legal rights. We have to look at the practicalities because our focus is always, how do we get this transaction closed? How do we, you know, it doesn't serve anybody to not close or find a way to close. Seller needs their money. We want the agents to get their commission. We want everybody to move on to the next thing. So we try and look at it from that. So we have to understand what the seller's position is and we also want to see, you know, is the buyer bona fide? Like, do they have an ability to close in a week when they tell us they're going? Is there a mortgage commitment? You know, we want to see the mortgage commitment at some point. But we're generally going to give them some leeway or negotiate some leeway, even if it's we don't have mortgage commitment, but we expect to get one in the next week. Okay, we're going to extend for a week on the basis that you produce that mortgage commitment by the end of that time, or we'll terminate you at that point in time, right? So we want to play ball as much as we can we want to be practical but we have to make sure we protect the legal rights of the seller at the same time so the position that in our office that we take and our lawyers all do it is we like to write back saying you're in default you're in breach we have certain rights we can scoop your deposit we can sue you for damages but we're not without prejudice to those rights we're not going to do it and we'll extend on these terms and conditions and give you some time and then when we get to the end of that extension period, we have to assess, you know, if they can close, great. If they can't and they need a further extension, we may have to negotiate again, or we can always pull the plug at that point in time and, and keep the deposit and sue for damages and put it back on the market. What, what a lot of people don't realize is how much market forces play a role in those negotiation tactics, right? Or not tactics, but approaches that... Uh, the seller takes and, and, and the legal office takes, right? Because yeah. like, for example, if it was a strong buyer's market, you know, the situation would be reverse. And yes, the right. seller would have some legal um, rights to keep the deposit and, and to do certain things and, and to be compensated for certain damages. But at the same time, you know, you'd want to take a completely different approach because protecting the integrity of the deal would be absolute paramount in those situations. You don't want to go out to the market, look for another buyer. You know, you want to make sure that you're, you're working with what's at hand. Right? right. But if the market's really strong, like, like the market that we've had, and I think we, we talked about a very specific example in the last podcast, but literally the difference between 24 hours can be hundreds of thousands of dollars towards the seller. Right. If you navigate and time this market properly. So, um, you know, very different approaches. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of sellers were looking for those anticipatory breaches to come. Right. right. Because they knew that, you know what, in three months, they could have gotten more than they did previously uh, for for the property. So it, uh, you know, the market conditions certainly play uh, a huge factor in, in how some of those conversations go. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. And the market conditions play a huge factor in the legal advice that we that we provide to clients on this, which is why I have to stay in touch with you and get the market updates and, and try and understand what's going on in the market as well, because it changes my approach and how I'm going to deal with this. You know, in different market conditions, sometimes we would have, it's, it's not really the, the buyer that that's defaulting, it's maybe the seller hasn't fulfilled everything under the agreement. Maybe there was an inspection and there was 20 things that the seller then on amendment agreed to repair and replace and fix before closing. And then you get is into issues of, you know, they haven't done it and we're now at closing or they haven't finished it all. They haven't done it properly. So the buyer hasn't done anything wrong yet, but the seller can't really fulfill their obligation. So then what does the buyer do in that situation? You know, do they, try and terminate the transaction? Do they try and close with an abatement in the purchase price? Do they extend the transaction to give the, the seller more time to fix it? So uh, a year ago, two years ago, when we're, we're talking about those issues, we had a lot of that. Markets were different and the seller was, okay, you know, don't terminate me. I'll, I'll do what I got to do and I'll fix it because, you know, they, they don't know where their next sale is going to be, right? Today, we don't even get those lists of items for sellers to, to fix before closing very often, right? There's no inspections in a lot of these offers. The buyer, you know, 
you take what you see and the buyers got to fix it themselves after closing, right? So our approach is, is different on those things because of market conditions. So that's why as a, you know, as a real estate lawyer, we have to be sensitive to, to the market information we get from, from your brokerage and from, you know, from hearing from you. Yeah, working together is so important, right? Just for the benefit of, of everybody involved, right? It's, it's very much a team approach. Um, and, uh, you know, the more open conversation that there is between everybody, um, the better for, for, for the clients, ultimately. Right. So, so David, what are, what are some of the damages? Like, let's say a buyer doesn't close. Um, what are some of the damages that occur along the way? You spoke about, you know, a lot of the uh, mortgage payments and uh, utility costs and carrying costs. What are some, give me a list of a couple other damages that might have occurred um, because yeah. of a buyer's decision not to uh, close and follow through on a, on a purchase decision. Yeah. Well, the biggest one is obviously a difference in purchase price. Okay. Right? The seller's got to go back and, and they have an obligation to try and mitigate their damages, which means it's a legal principle, which means that they can't just sit back and take the first price that comes along or the first offer comes along from somebody else, even if it's $100,000 less than what they'd sold it for and say, okay, you know, so I'm going to sue the defaulting buyer for that money. That's not, you know, the law wouldn't support that position. They have an obligation to put it back on the market in a list, multiple listing situation and try and get fair market. They have to establish that they made an, an effort to get fair market value. Otherwise they're not gonna be able to sue for those damages from the defaulting buyer, right? But that's obviously the biggest one, the difference in purchase price. So let's assume they did that and there was a difference in purchase price because we're not in a market where the prices are going up, but let's say the market stops and, and they do sell it for $100,000 less. So they can certainly claim that as part of their damages. Right. And then there's the timing issue. They were supposed to close on May 5th. Now they, they sold it. Maybe they put it back in the market, sold it May 6th or 7th, but the closing isn't until July 7th. So now the property is being carried for a couple months. So they've incurred insurance costs, utility costs, property taxes, you know, during that, that time period. They may have incurred other costs to, you know, to restage the property or to fix up certain things. They may or may not be recoverable for that you know, depending on that, but you certainly put it on your list and you might have to argue whether or not that's a reasonable cost that's incurred. Uh, the other thing that, you know, that they need to try to recover is their carrying costs of the property. If they were supposed to close today and they're getting all the proceeds and it was a million dollars, they have a million dollars in their bank and they could be earning interest on that money going forward. Instead, they didn't close, they don't have that money and they still may have mortgages to pay on that property. So they've got those carrying costs of those mortgages. Okay, they may have had to be buying another property and uh, because they didn't close on their sale, now they get to get a bridge loan and they're carrying two properties. There's the cost of the bridge loan. So those are the type of things that might be recoverable. You know, a bridge loan not necessarily would be uh, given to them. It depends on what the buyer, the defaulting buyer would have known. Like, did they know? That this was part of a chain and they needed this closing to buy another property so it's reasonable to know that they would incur bridge loan costs so sometimes you might be able to recover that sometimes you might not so you look at every potential cost that they might incur they may not all be applicable they may not all, not all be recoverable but you have to remember too that these are all damages and these are in addition to just keeping the deposit okay in addition to in addition to so the law is basically you default, you lose your deposit. That's gone. And now and there's always- Does it matter, doesn't matter how much the deposit is? Like, doesn't matter whether it's $1,000 or $100,000? Yes. Yeah, it does. Like the basic principle is that it shouldn't matter. The deposit right. is gone. Right. But when these, do, when these cases do go to litigation and they, and they are, you know, there's an argument that's made by the defaulting buyer a lot of times or by their counsel, especially when there's a large deposit and they've sold for a reasonable price or a better price or something that, that they argue on equitable principles. Like this is just too much. Like why should a, a seller recover all their damages, all their losses 
And then there may have also been a $400,000 deposit on a $2 million home or something. And they get to keep the full $400,000 as well. When they also sold that $2 million home, when they resold it, they sold it for 2.2, right? So at some point, a judge is going to say, you know, on the equities, that's too much. And we're not going to let the seller keep all of that. We're going to make sure the seller is whole and we're going to let them keep some of that because otherwise, what's the point of having a deposit? So they're going to allow them to keep some of that deposit, but not necessarily the whole thing, depending on the amount of the deposit in question, right? Otherwise, like why have why have deposits? You know, you look at, at the multi-offer situations we're on right now, and you got you know 16 parties coming in with offers, and they accept one of them, so the other 15 are all gone. And if that one doesn't doesn't make their deposit when they're supposed to, they've now tied up the property. Everybody else has disappeared or moved on. And now they're in default. So what's the point of, you know, if they just off the hook, what's the point of having deposits in the first place? There's supposed to be, you know, a forfeiture of those deposits if there's a default. That was going to be my next question is if a property, um, if a buyer defaults and the property goes to market and they get a higher price. So there really isn't a da any damages uh, as uh, in disposition costs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, what happens to the deposit. So it's the balance of equities that, that plays into a factor then. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the basic principles of deposit should be gone, forfeited. That's the end of it. And that's common law. That's entrenched into common law. Yeah. But then there's some equities where the parties can argue that it's not reasonable. It's too much of a windfall for a seller and it's too punitive on the defaulting buyer. It depending, but a lot of, like your point is, is well taken. It depends on how much the deposit was. You know, if it's a twenty thousand dollar deposit, it's one thing. If it's if it's a four hundred thousand dollar deposit and, and they sell for a higher price, it's looked at differently, right? So there's definitely a factor there, and the other factor that has to come into play is even though the parties you know establish what their legal rights and, and principles might be, again they got to look at the practicalities. Um, the buyer might say, you know what, I know you've got my $100,000 deposit. I'm prepared, even though you're going to sell the property for more, the market's good. I'll cover you for damages, but I want, it's reasonable for me to ask for half of it back and we can just settle this and nobody has to sue anybody and we can just negotiate a settlement and you keep half and I'll, and I'll get half back and everybody can move on. And sometimes that's a good position for a seller to accept because they'll have that 50000 when they're in a market and they get advice from David Gorski, they're going to be able to resell it at a higher price. So they know they'll be covered and they've got you know enough to cover any damages they really might incur, but now they don't have to be involved in a lawsuit over it because no one really wants to be in a lawsuit. And, you know, and it's, I think from your point of view, from my point of view, it's always good advice to give clients to avoid a lawsuit if they can, if there's a reasonable settlement out there, take it. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you never want to have your faith decided by a third party. You want to be in complete control of your faith, and best uh, way of doing that is ensuring that you know uh, there's a meeting of the minds and uh, both parties agree on a resolution. And that's uh, that's really uh, you know where where things stop and where things end. Right. The worst thing to happen is to um, go through the court system, which is a very lengthy and expensive procedure. Uh, you have to hire a litigation lawyer. These are people who, um, you know, minimum charge a couple hundred dollars per hour for their time. And everything that happens in court is lengthy and, and there's a process to it. And, you know, the judge has to find out all the facts, which takes time. Uh, there has to be, um, you know, several court appearances before anything is determined. And uh, you're really giving your faith uh, in the hands of somebody else. So, um, you know, probably the best thing to do is to make sure there's a resolution before that happens for sure. Yeah. And litigation takes time, even pre-COVID, it takes a long time. You're not going to get it through and get a, a decision of a trial court, you know, with, if without it, going at least a year to two years going by and then they're subject to appeal and the first thing that litigation lawyer is going to ask for is a retainer uh, you know, aside from whatever their hourly rate might be they're going to want a retainer to look at something like this if they're going to you know they have a lawsuit over a hundred thousand dollar deposit they're going to be asking for a, a minimum of a ten thousand dollar retainer in most cases 
And you might be on the, on the right side of this. You might be the seller of, you know, with a defaulting buyer, but you still have to lay out that $10,000 to your litigation lawyer. And you hope that, that everything goes well and you might be able to recover that or some of it if you're successful at the end of the day. And uh, it's expensive and that's just to get it started. And then if you then it keeps going, you got discoveries, you got the whole process, the, the time lag and everything. So, you know, I, I always say to clients, are you looking to, you know, to buy a property or buy a lawsuit? Uh, you got to look at these things practically when you're involved in this and cut your losses when you can cut your losses. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, listen, how much is your health worth? How much is your time worth? How much is the positive energy in your life worth to you? How much is this negative situation going to drain you? And what's the opportunity cost on the other side of the table, right? Because, you know, sometimes you might not get the favorable outcome that you think you deserve, but it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, shake hands and agree to disagree and move on to the next project or next big, big thing or, or, you know, look at uh, a different transaction. Right. And, and buyers are motivated to try and get whatever they can back from the deposit. Uh, they need that money. If, if they can't close on this property for whatever, then they're going to be looking generally for another property and they want the money for their next deposit. So, you know, and sellers want to move on and, and, and sell and not be tied up in litigation generally. And, and you as a, as a brokerage, like you don't really want, I imagine you don't really want that money sitting in your trust account. You want to, you want to get releases done when they can be. And maybe we should talk about releases a little bit too. Cause I know like you, you don't, you don't want to release money from your trust account without there being a, a release by both sides. Right. Correct. So, I mean, you know, trust accounts are extremely important and we take trust money very, very seriously. We actually account for it almost on a daily basis. Uh, we go through full reconciliations on a weekly basis. Uh, we do monthly reconciliations as well. And you know what, in the 35 years that we've been in business, um, we've never had any issues whatsoever with, with uh, any trust monies going in. And we regularly hold uh, tens of millions of dollars in our trust account. Uh, um, pending transactions and closings, you know, we, we are really busy brokerage, but um, it's something that's very, very important. And there are very clear rules uh, governing um, trust accounts and, and how that money can get deposited and withdrawn from the, the account. Right. So, so if you're told by one of your agents that, you know, my deal's being terminated and, um, and, and we need the deposit monies released to, so they can move on. What's your response to them? Like, what, what is it that you say, well, I can't, I can't uh, send out the trust monies until I receive what? Well, we, we need signed written direction from all parties involved, from both the buyer and the seller, and from each of the buyer and each of the seller before we can touch uh, any trust money. So there has to be uh, a mutual agreement in place, and we call it a mutual release uh, in the case that both parties uh, agree to terminate the, uh, the transaction and release trust money. We call that document a mutual release, and it's actually signed by um, not only each party to the transaction, but also the broker of record for the listing brokerage and the broker of record for the cooperating brokerage, because we want to make sure that each party and each management uh, party is also aware of what happened here, uh, why the funds are being released, and the fact that the transaction is no longer being uh, cons uh, consummated. Yeah, and, and the two respective brokerages and the agents involved have an interest themselves in that deposit money because that's the money that's generally used to pay their commissions. So there has to be an understanding by everybody that no, there's not going to be a commission paid on this transaction. It fell apart and the money is really going back to the buyer or some of it may be going to the seller if that was negotiated, but it's generally not going to the, to the agents because no one's getting paid a commission on a transaction that didn't close for whatever reason. Well, I always feel bad right. because usually it's got nothing to do with them. They did their job, you know, they, as agents and something happened to the buyer or the seller and, and they couldn't close for whatever reason. So they so they don't get their commissions paid from that too. 
Well, you know, a trust money is, is never really our money, right? Um, I, I don't look at it that it's, it's, it's our money in any sort of respect. Trust money really belongs to the client. And, and that's really how, how we deal with it. And we safeguard and hold it in the highest regard. Right. And it's only upon successful completion of the transaction that monies get dispersed to pay outstanding commissions. And that's right in the body of the agreement of purchase and sale. Okay. The, the interesting thing about these, you know, you, you refer to these documents as a mutual release and parties have to be careful when they're signing a mutual release uh, because the direction part might be clear to everybody. They want the money. It all goes back to the buyer or some goes to the buyer. Some might go to the seller or whatever, but the release language in there is important to take a look at from a legal point of view, because the general language in, the, in those printed form mutual release is that it's a full release of everybody, of all obligations, et cetera. So even Correct. though the seller might intend to just give the deposit monies back to the buyer or some of it, uh, they may not really want to be releasing that buyer from all other damages because they got to put the property back on the market and sell to somebody else. And they want to reserve those rights to sue for damages. So that can be done in a release as well, but it, the language has to be changed that we're releasing not the parties complete from the transaction, we're releasing the, the deposit money. This is how it's being dispersed, but it's without prejudice to a seller's rights to sue that buyer for other damages that might be incurred. So sometimes that's when you've, you got to bring us in on these uh, terminated transactions to just check the wording on these release documents. Absolutely. And you know what, that's an excellent point. And we often do uh, just because if there's any issues whatsoever. And if one of the parties is contemplating, um, you know, any sort of actions or claims, then a mutual release is not the right form to use to release the money from, from the trust account. And this is where, you know, our relationship is so important and we uh, lean on your guidance and support just to make sure that we give the right guidance to, uh, to our clients. But, you know, to a lot of agents out there, you know, this is really, really important because once you sign a mutual release, that's all that's all there is you know all parties walk away shake shake hands and 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 no party really has any recourse um or any rights to any claims and if one party does start a claim uh then i believe the language in the mutual release is that it uh it actually indemnifies the other party or or um, David, what would what would happen in that case if one party yeah. signed a mutual release and and started uh um you know, a claim against the other party after everybody signed the mutual release? Yeah, the, the defense, you know, the first line of defense to that claim would be they hold up, here's the mutual release that you signed, you released us. So we're, we're out, you can't sue right. us. And but you're right, there's also some indemnity language that they, you know, you know, until they get in front of a judge or the cost of getting from a judge who's going to look at it and then throw it out, throw it out, uh, yeah there's indemnity language that they can recover those costs against the party that's pursuing a claim when there was, when there was already a release given. Right. That would be the easiest court case in front of a judge, I think. Right. 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 But I mean, a lot of the times, I mean, listen, a litigation lawyer is also going to look at the facts and examine the facts and uh, give their client advice at that point that, listen, I mean, I can take your retainer, but, you know, your probability of success here is so minuscule just because, you know, you signed your rights away. There's a release here. The other party is going to lean on this release. And there's really nothing out of context here to say that this release was signed out of duress um, or, or anything like that to really, you know, make, make a case out of this. Right. Like, did they have legal counsel before they signed the release? You know, was it on the advice of legal counsel? So they understood exactly what the release was saying. Did they understand that it was a full and final release of everything and they gave up the rights to sue or did it still allow them to have rights to sue and was it explained to them? So there's those type of things that get, you know, those issues come up and everything. And, and just also to the point we were talking about last week a little bit, and we were talking about, you know, duty to act in good faith and, and those type of principles, those all come into play as well on these cases that do go through the courts when they're deciding on you know whether deposits can be kept in full or whether there's additional damages and the extent of that 
they look at all those factors as well, where the party is always acting in good faith, was the non-defaulting party acting in good faith and give them an opportunity to extend or to or offer them reasonable terms of an extension before they just pulled the plug on the transaction and relied on their legal principles. And right. judges look unkindly to people that don't come into court with clean hands is, is the concept in quotation marks, right? You can't just right. say, oh, they're in default, I can do whatever the hell I want. And no, you have to still comply with your side of the agreement and you still have to act in good faith and be reasonable. And I think once we, we see a round of litigation go through during the COVID year, that'll become even more into play. Because I think a judge is just going to hammer any party that just tried, that, that didn't act in good faith and didn't try at least to come to some reasonable terms to extend a transaction or keep it going or find a way to close it before they just pulled the plug and said, no, I'm keeping all your deposit and I'm going to sue you. Mm -hmm. and, and we saw a lot of this going on in 2017 when uh, the market cooled off, right? And a lot of buyers said, oh, I'm not closing in this transaction. I'm just going to walk away, you know, take me to court, right? And right. kind of hoping that uh, or, or leaning on the fact that a lot of sellers won't. And right. what we saw is we actually saw a lot of people go through the court system. And um, David, I'm sure you can shed some light on this, but from my understanding, the court system came down extremely hard on, on those buyers uh, who didn't act in good faith and who arbitrarily made decisions not to um, go through with the, some of the transactions because they felt they overpaid because of the market sh shift now, right? Yeah, and the, the courts were really looking to figure that out. And if they really felt that, that a party was not acting in good faith, and just saying, oh, this is an easy way, not an easy way, they're still costing some money, but I'm gonna walk away. Um, you know, sometimes that's that's not enough. So the courts are looking at, at what market conditions were like at the time. That's an, a very important factor. They need the evidence, you know, from the agents produced in a court proceeding as to what market conditions were like and, and what would it reason what would a reasonable buyer, reasonable seller expect for it to go back in the market at that time. And if parties didn't act in, in good faith or just showed, oh, no, uh, you know, I'm just going to walk away and, and I'm not likely to be sued for damages. Uh, the courts are, are, are bending over backwards the other way. And that was, like you said, it's 2017 when that was going on. So uh, COVID is, is, is only going to reinforce those type of positions because the judges are going to be a little more sympathetic. They're always going to want to protect the non-defaulting party and try and keep them whole. But they don't want that. They don't want that party to take advantage of a situation either, and look for windfalls, and, and get uh, you know unreasonable amounts. They want to make sure they're covered for their reasonable expenses and their costs. And sometimes that's extensive. But you know they got they want to draw a line somewhere and look at the equitable principles. Right. So if we switch gears, David, and talk about a seller, right? And let's say a seller changes their mind on selling a property. And I'll give you an example of, you know, uh, a little old grandmother, you know, uh, grew up in a house for 40 years and she has a big yard, um, beautiful white picket fence and uh, closing day comes and she just says, you know what, I, I, I have too many memory, memories in this house and I'm not ready to let it go. Mm -hmm. Right, which is sort of the, the cold feet by a by a seller, right. and who wouldn't have sympathy for that little old grandma? But right. on the other hand, you know, she signed an agreement of purchase and sale. She signed a contract. She's time is of the essence. She's got an obligation to close on the closing day. You can't just change your mind. There's consequences to doing that. Now, one of the remedies that could be available to a buyer is for specific performance. For a buyer to say, I'm ready to close. I've done everything. I've got my money. I've got all my stuff together, signed all my dogs. I'm ready to close. I want that property. You agreed to sell me that property. So if you don't, I'm going to go to court and get a judge to order that you sell me that property and make you fulfill that agreement. Unfortunately, the remedy of specific performance is hard to obtain um, unless the buyer can show that there's something really unique about that property that made it that cannot be replaced. It cannot be replaced. They can't just go down the street and buy a similar house at a similar price. There's something about that property 
that was unique, especially to that buyer. Okay, that's a hard thing to establish. And the courts are reluctant to give that without some pretty compelling evidence as to what made that unique. Because what the court says, look, we, I can't force them to give you that house, but I can force that grandmother to compensate you in damages for any other costs you incurred because of their default. So you as a buyer, if you have to go out and buy a similar property, because there was nothing unique about that property, go find another property that was similar. And if that similar property cost you more money because the market changed and you have to spend another $100,000 to get a similar house to the grandmother's, then that grandmother, we can make an order. The grandmother has to pay you that $100,000 for the difference in price. And you incur well, legal costs and you incur other damages. So they can award that. So the judges would say, if, they can, if the buyer can be compensated in damages by the seller, we won't necessarily order specific performance because we can make that buyer whole. So we're still punishing the grandmother. She gets to keep her house, but it's gonna cost her money that she's gonna to have to pay that buyer because the buyer's got to find another property. Unfortunately, you got to sue to do that and you got to go through a, a court system to do that. So there aren't a lot of those type of cases that happen. It, you know, it, it's, it's always a great discussion when you come across one of those things because it's not that often that a seller for those type of reasons, uh, you know, gets cold feet and decides not to go ahead. But it happens sometimes. Sometimes sellers just try and get out because right after the ink's dried on the offer they accepted, they find out there's another offer offering more money. So they're just desperately looking for a way to not close with one seller so they can sell to somebody else. I think after, and I've been on those sides of the coin, and I think after, um, you know, you speak uh, or the seller speaks to uh, their lawyer and a litigation lawyer, I think they very quickly change their mind and realize that, you know what, they, they do have to um, perform with with the contract that's signed i wasn't aware that if a buyer if a seller um terminates or 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 doesn't uh, perform their duties in their contract and a buyer buys a different property the seller would be obligated in a similar manner that a buyer would be obligated if a seller took a, a lesser price um, that a seller would need to compensate the buyer so that's uh, that's actually really good to know yeah, if, if those are real damages incurred, again, it's going to rely right. on the evidence of the, the real estate agents involved as to, you know, was that a fair market price under the original contract? And then and you're comparing another property and how similar is it? Is it comparable? And, and what's the difference? But if there's a real difference and you can establish to a judge that you couldn't have done any better, you couldn't have bought another similar house for a more reasonable amount than that, and you can establish that, then you're entitled to claim that and, and recover that against the defaulting seller. Yeah, no, absolutely. The one positive thing if a seller defaults is that there's also a house. And if, uh, if you go through the court system and, and get a judgment, you can also register the judgment against the property. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you're protected by the real estate involved as well. Right. Right. So, and you need a litigation where that's going to be able to act quickly and get an order quickly. You want to be able to get something registered on, on title to make sure that house isn't sold to somebody else before you, you know, before you get rights to, you know, because you want some security to know they're going to get paid if they're successful in their litigation. And, and that creates a whole other issue because you can't always, uh, you know, tie up a property that way. So you've got to go to court, you know, it's, it's always, Unfortunately, someone has to, you know, my, my litigation friends hate me for saying things like this, but it's always unfortunate we have to hire a litigation lawyer and get one involved because it's expensive. You got to lay the money out up front. Even if you're in the right, you still got to pay your lawyer a fair bit of money up front to get them going. And, and if they have to go to court on a rush basis, it, it's very expensive process to get an injunction or that type of, of relief. It is. And, and you know what, I think it's uh, just sitting here thinking about the numbers of and the volume of transaction that my office does uh, compared to how many litigation cases there are in front of the courts involving our transactions. And I think the numbers are like 0.001%, right? And I think that's a true testament yeah. to, um, you know, the training that 
the, the brokerages do and, you know, our relationship and, and the fact that, you know, we are always striving to educate the realtors and we get involved very quickly, you and I, um, you know, I'm on the phone in less than three minutes. Uh, if I can't resolve the issue, um, you know, my agents get your team involved and together we're able to really get to the root of the problem so quickly and working together as a team, um, we really resolve a lot of the issues before us and, and they never get to the court systems and they never go down this path. So I think that's really, really important as well, navigating through this and just realizing that, you know what, these are every, all the remedies available to buyers, to sellers, that this is what happens in the court system, but just having the guidance and, and leadership not to even get there and to have successful closing in place, um, you know, it's putting a big smile on my face because, you know, I, I just never really thought about this just before now having a conversation. Like we do so many thousands of transactions and I think we, I have two lawsuits in, in my brokerage right now, which is amazing. It's extraordinary how busy of a brokerage we are. We have 190 agents. We do thousands and thousands and thousands of transactions a year and we have two lawsuits in front of us. Um, and then that's a testament to, you know, our uh, partnership and, 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 and everything else that we do on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. And I think it's a great testament. And similarly in our office, like we are also, we, we are literally closing a, a few thousand transactions every year and we've been doing it for 40 years. And I can tell you, you know, right now the, the five lawyers in our office right now, we don't have a single lawsuit that any of us are involved in, like not one, not, not a threatened lawsuit. And that's, you know, that's not just saying, oh, we're all great lawyers, you know, get, get sued, because there's always the risk, you know, we're thinking about it all the time. But everything we're doing and the advice that we're giving, we're trying to give proper advice, but that's where I always go back to, we're also aware of the practicalities and the, and the emphasis on trying to get transactions closed and try and find a way to get closed. And the motivation for getting it done is to avoid the losses. We have to understand the law you have to understand the law as a broker of record. You have to understand the law as a real estate agent as well, because our whole goal is to not have these lawsuits, is to get transactions closed. So I think it's a great point, David. It's, it's great you know, for your firm. It's great for my firm that we're not involved and buried in, in litigation. Our clients aren't involved in that because we are sensitive to what those rights of the parties are. And so we're always addressing it and trying to keep them out of the litigation focus on getting the deals closed as opposed to suing each other and standing on legal principles. 100%. And I think there's a big educational component there that, uh, um, you know, is, is definitely at the forefront of, of, of that milestone. Yep. Yep. Awesome, David. What I think we're going to end it here. Uh, believe it or not, that was a full hour of a podcast. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. Um, Thank you guys for joining us. A lot of awesome topics that we just discussed and we're gonna dive even deeper uh, next week uh, on podcast number five. Looking forward to it. Everybody have a good week, stay safe, get out there. There's lots of action and, uh, and do some good deals. Awesome, stay productive everybody. And remember, build wealth through real investing in real estate.